Hi, I'm Luke O'Neill, and you're listening to the Skeptically Inclined Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 17 of the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. Today, we are joined by Professor Luke O'Neill. Enjoy the episode. Hello, Luke. Uh, welcome to the Skeptically Inclined Science Podcast. Uh, we are really excited and grateful to have you on. We know how busy you are uh, and hope you've enjoyed your St. Patrick's Day week. I know you were very busy. You were guest editor on um, Primetime Jared during the week. So. I was. That was a surprise to me. Definitely <laughs> happy to do that, but I was happy to do it. Well, congrats. It was a very good episode. Um, <laughs> before we start, you're well known in Ireland, but maybe if you would like to introduce yourself to our international listeners who may be less familiar with your work. Sure, yeah. Well, I'm, my name is Luke O'Neill. I am the Chair of Biochemistry in Trinity College Dublin, but I'm an immunologist. There's a strange thing. I'm a biochemist, but I'm also an immunologist. And I suppose I've done 35 years of research now into the immune system, mainly in connection with inflammatory diseases. That's my main focus. And then more recently, COVID, because obviously COVID-19 is an inflammatory disease of the lungs, effectively. So, so many years of working on trying to unravel the complexity of these inflammatory pathways has been my main focus. And we're talking about big diseases here, by the way. I've worked on things like rheumatoid arthritis. Crohn's disease was a big one. Um, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's lately are two big ones. And I'm very much a fundamental scientist working on the kind of nuts and bolts of those diseases. That's a fascinating stuff, Luke. And I was listening to your uh, lectures on YouTube. And uh, if you maybe could Tell us a little bit more about metabolic reprogramming before we get into the COVID questions, because uh, that seems to be... Yeah, huge focus. I mean, that began almost by accident about 10 years ago, I guess, in my lab. We, we mainly work on, I think, on an innate immunity, which is like a frontline part of the immune response. And that will drive this thing called inflammation, which means you get too much activation of some, you know, white macrophages and mm. so on. Uh, and that's beneficial, but then it turns into a disease state. And then we discovered about 10 years ago, you get a metabolic change inside the macrophages. Mm -hmm. And they begin to burn glucose, for example, in a very kind of peculiar way. And that opened up a whole avenue of research for our lab. And many labs actually began to jump on that bandwagon, you might call it. You get funny byproducts from those metabolic pathways. And they then drive the inflammatory process. So, so it was a strange one because normally immunologists wouldn't be interested in metabolism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It was seen as a, to do with like nutrients and stuff like that, I suppose. There was, there was an interest, though, for people working on diabetes, for instance, where there was a connection mm -hmm. to dysfunctional immune responses. But overall, it was seen as a real sort of, a, what shall we say, obscure thing to work on. But then the last five, six years in particular, it's taken off like a rocket and whole new insights have been made into metabolic change, basically. And, and in my lab, we're lucky enough, we've made two or three reasonably important discoveries. Yes, yes. <laughs> and then most recently... Even more serendipitous, COVID causes very similar metabolic change in the inflammatory process as, as what happened during inflammation more generally. So again, my lab was well positioned then to move into COVID research. So, sorry, uh, so were you able to borrow from the uh, research that you have already done in the re metabolic reprogramming and apply it into a COVID science? Well, it was funny. We, we published papers beginning in 2016, you might say, mm -hmm. on, on bacterial infections, you know? And then COVID labs began to repeat our work in the context of COVID. And began, we began to get an overlap, you know? Right. What, what we'd found, it turns out, was a fundamental process that happens in any kind of infection, not just in bacteria, you know? Mm -hmm. And then very excitingly, COVID is causing a similar reprogramming event. 
and that opens up the chance then to, to treat COVID in various ways. By, by, I mean, what, one inspiration for the COVID work was we knew diabetics were at a higher risk of COVID and mm-hmm. much more severe disease because they've got a metabolic imbalance already, you know? Yeah, yeah. And sort of exacerbated by COVID in a way. So all kinds of interesting aspects began to emerge literally in the past six months. I mean, you wouldn't believe. Jesus, must be exciting being in your lab during the lab meetings. Well, it is. Yeah, I mean, the lab are very excited. <laughs> well, they're they're very turned on because they're working on COVID. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, would you ever have thought that this this would have happened? That your work previous would have been now used to to uh, yeah. research COVID. Exactly, Evan. Well, but there was a bit of an well. We work on a metabolite called itaconate to get a bit more detail on it. Yes, and that comes off Krebs cycle. Anybody who's done biology will know what Krebs cycle is. And itaconate is a byproduct of Krebs. And there was some evidence it was affecting viruses even two years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and our, our paper in 2018, we showed effects on type 1 interferons. And type 1 interferons are very important for antiviral immunity. So mm-hmm. there was kind of a hint of it there already, you know? But there's no question we didn't expect to, to end up working on SARS-CoV-2 in a metabolic context, really. You know, that was a surprise. Yeah. yeah. And, and we're making some very interesting... One reason I was late today was we just had a big call with our, with our uh, Dutch collaborator. Oh, very good. Yeah, and, and they work in um, in in, uh, in Leiden. Oh, yeah. oh, yes, the Leiden University Medical Center. Precisely, yeah. Yes. And, and they were getting data for us, and we just had a big call. Now, sadly, as ever in research, it's not quite as exciting as we thought. <laughs> but even still, we, 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 still, we still press on with it, you know. But, but I, I never thought I'd be talking to COVID, like SARS-CoV-2 lab. Yeah, oh, it's absolutely, fa- absolutely fascinating the yeah. work you have done. Um, and yeah, just maybe to continue the whole thing about COVID, um, as you have been the, a great spokesperson about COVID and stuff, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine, you were talking about this, the rollout was paused. It's now been reinstated since last Friday yeah. or Saturday. Um, is there any way of dealing with the new safety concerns in a coordinated way without causing worry in the public? I think so, Evan. As you know, I was quite vocal on this last week. They made a mess of that. Yeah. And it wasn't just the Irish. All over Europe, 16 countries paused that vaccine. Mm. And the Germans and the French were misbehaved, in my opinion. Like Macron said, oh, look, this isn't that efficacious. And that wasn't true. You yeah. Know? Um, so it's unfortunate. Now, why would that happen? Is it politics? It's complicated, obviously. AstraZeneca did make a couple of mistakes themselves. So it's a complex thing, you know. But it's very simple. I mean, you got to go with science. Now, we knew this was a very rare event, yeah. the coagulation business. Now, the rarity did not justify pausing the vaccine. So why they paused it, I do not know. And remember, the British, uh, the MHRA, very competent people, they said keep using it. The EMA said keep using it. WHO said the same. So why, are, why these governments decide to pause it was a completely sort of unusual thing in that they just didn't follow the science on this. You yeah. know? And there's a recently published paper as well today about, uh, and they looked at these side effects and they didn't find anything with, right. with yeah. the, um, clotting. So it is um, yeah. quite, quite unusual. Um, and yet you as well on that RT primetime episode, you talked to a Norwegian health official. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was very unusual was he said, you asked, why do they, have these clotting events why did they happen in norway yeah. and he said they had a better tracking system do you yeah. think that was an appropriate response as one could interpret it as meaning there was issues going undetected across europe 
Well, I was a bit on the ropes there. I, mean, I should have, I should have re- retorted more effectively there. The was, I, I didn't want to give him too much time. <laughs> now, in other words, it's okay to have his opinion and stuff, but good God, we could get tangled up there, couldn't we? You know? Yeah. And maybe he's right. It's so rare, though. You know, I mean, it's so rare. That you have to have a very effective health reporting system to pick it up. Let's put it that way, you know? So it wouldn't have been that big an issue that other countries missed it because it's extremely rare anyway. If anything, it proves the rareness of it, you know? Yeah. You need a very effective health reporting system to, to detect this highly rare event, you know. No, but he also got me on when he said, Oh, other countries had it. I should have retorted there and said it's still extremely rare, you know. And Adrian Hill was quite good out. He said there was one case in Poland, four in Germany. He knew all the numbers because he, he's the AstraZeneca guy, you know. So, so, but that's true. I mean, it, it was a strange enough conversation. It wasn't bad, though, to have it because I was involved in planning the program, you know. And we want to balance. So we thought it was good to bring him on. To say, look, they're still worried, you know. And then Adrian and me could say, well, hang on, it's extremely rare, and we shouldn't really be worrying about, it, you know. But it was it was a tough enough thing to to convey to the public, maybe as to what was going on. My only goal in, in doing the program was to reassure people it's a safe vaccine that they should take, really, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you did a good job with that. Uh, yeah, and definitely, and uh, we keep saying that as well that uh, definitely stick with the vaccines. Um, but on the topic of vaccines. Um, we both know that the um, the work of the vaccine is dictated by the variant that is more predominant in the in the population or in the society. But with all of these um, high media stress put on reporting the different variants, uh, do you think that these uh, and also the different messaging um, has that increased the amount of distrust in science among the public? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean. It's problematic because we're in the middle of a storm, let's face it, you know, and and there is a massive amount of information flying around the hurricane all the time, you know, mm. and we don't want to repress any information. I'm a big fan of full transparency, but the trouble is to the lay person, you have to be a bit careful because it's very much a work in progress, you know, and we still don't know enough about these things anyway. And normally before COVID, you wouldn't report things in, in, in a science communication way unless the publisher was published in nature, you know, and we knew it was real, you just kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Whereas the phase we're in now, it's all this data and it's a terribly mixed thing. And it's an important question to ask because it doesn't do people's mental health any good, you know? Mm. And that's a real consideration, I think. And, and I have to say, I'm critical of some of the communication strategies, especially in Ireland and other countries, because they, they, they just, you know, something is said, and then they didn't think it through. They didn't think the consequences of that, you know, and how people might respond to that, you know? Yeah. It's a really tricky question, this, I think. And and the variants, most of all, like yesterday, Sunday Independent, there was a big thing in the side panel on the front page, something along the lines of, you know, vaccines uh, with a limited eff- effectiveness or something like that. It was a terrible phrase, you know? Yeah. That was a big mistake to say that in, in the public because, that it's, first of all, it's probably not true. They might know, you know? And yet that, that could set off huge anxiety in the population, which doesn't do anybody any favors, you know? Yeah. yeah. Because it's such a, so much of a work in progress for, for communications as well, it's it's a difficult one, isn't it? I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but certainly they could do a better job on the messaging for definite. And and if, if if the immediate there's two immediate consequences of bad messaging. One is anxiety in the population, which you don't want. Yeah. That enhances pandemic fatigue, which means people start breaking the rules anyway because they're fed up. That that's mm-hmm. one consequence and that endangers people and then the biggest one would be vaccine hesitancy because it feeds that yeah and that's the one thing we don't want at the moment is vaccine hesitancy because the only way out of this is vaccination you see so so it's a complicated question it's hard to know what, what, what the what the best advice would be to give 
the likes of Neff and how to communicate things. But I do think sometimes they, they, they don't do a good job. Yeah, I mean, the lockdown fatigue is, 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 is absolutely real because I think today I was watching news and I think the young Americans, they don't really care about it and they started the spring breaks in the... Uh, and I thought Miami Beach was horrendous, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and yet it's understandable. I, I'm not, I wouldn't be that critical of those young people. I mean, it, it's, up, it's up to the authorities to keep people going, you know. Yeah. Keep, keep the people informed in a way that's useful without, without being, like, you know, covert in the information either. So it's a tricky balancing act to get right. And my next thing I'm going to do probably on Thursday with Pat Kenny will be this issue of pandemic fatigue. Mm. Because if people lose trust in the government, and if they, they're fed up with all the negative, negative messaging, they don't care anymore, you know, and they go out and they mingle and they meet and they, they lose the, the motivation, really, you know, and, and that's something that they, they, they that's why the, the messaging is so important to maintain motivation. The best example we had, Tom, was the HIV pandemic in the 80s. Yeah. The, the, the initial part of that was abstinence was recommended, right? Mm. That was never going to work, you know, no. and people tried it for a while and then they got fed up, you know, and then the messaging changed to safe sex. That was much better then. Safe sex was a better way to approach that. Yeah, know? of course. With condoms and all these. And we need to move on now with this pandemic in, in, into harm reduction more than anything else, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's something the NEFIT and, and the government must, must, must be aware of this and must be cognizant of this. Jesus, yeah, that's really going to be an issue if nothing's going to get done. Yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, in the age of the internet now, I suppose with vaccine skepticism, there is so many ways to learn about science. But on the flip side, Luke, you talk about misinformation online and how easy it is for individuals to stumble upon or be targeted by false ins- information. Are science communities and institutions doing enough to communicate with these people? Uh, and how do you like stop them accessing this false information? It, it's almost impossible. I mean, it's been going on before COVID. Like, you, you know, if you, you had a pain in your big toe and you Googled it, right? You were drawn to the things that cancer of the big toe right <laughs> we're built us humans are built that way we always look for the negative because to protect ourselves you know uh the, the great example i have is stephen fry said this once about social media he said one negative comment can bring you down it's like a turd in the swimming pool he said <laughs> you've got a beautiful christine swimming pool. you're drawn to the turd but that, that's a defensive response that's natural in a way you know so, so it's hard to stop it. Uh, I mean, obviously, you need to get the other side out there the whole time. You need balance on this one for definite and try to remind people to go for reputable sources of information. And it could be the CDC in America or it could be the, uh, the EMA, a great, you know. And then my, my responsibility when I'm on the media is to try to counterbalance that, that, that conspiracy stuff with science. And so look, here's the data, you know, and please follow the data. In terms of if you're a lay person, you, you can't be reading the primary literature you, you, you know you, you, only so many hours in the day secondly it's too technical for you you know but there's a big responsibility on on, on scientists to communicate as accurately and as and, and as transparently as they can to try and counterbalance the other yeah, it's interesting because like me and tom have talked about this as well in in um in communication and it seems like i suppose for young people it can be difficult when it's these big organizations that are kind of and i suppose no offense but older men i suppose in a guy yeah. and i suppose they it, and sometimes you would think maybe if they had someone young relatable yeah. like i suppose you can use influencers as in a way like can they is this something that they should be looking at to like help get these young people yeah. on board because yeah. it does seem like uh as something that 
is lacking in 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 targeting these individuals what yeah that's right evan the one thing is diversity let's start with that yeah one middle-aged guy in his 50s like me banging on all that's a waste it's not a waste of time it doesn't help because that voice gets boring and so now i'm asked the whole time to do it you're always on i never asked to go on yeah <laughs> they asked me yeah you know? um, but you need diversity which means younger people balance in, in viewpoints you know across every spectrum of humanity you know it's impossible to get full full uh, diversity i suppose but the more diverse the, the, the experts are the better because they might register with one group and that, and that's fine you know and, and some people identify with it could be an influencer it could be male versus female whatever it is the more, more diversity the better that's the first thing right um, and definitely with the people trying to reach and we do need to reach the the, the whole span of, of the, the demographics you know and so, so I'm a huge fan of get, get, getting diversity into it in many ways. Uh, how do you achieve that? It's tricky because journalists are lazy. They always ask me because they know I'll always deliver, you know, yeah. um, where it's a risk to ask someone else. But it's something that we should be very conscious of. I think it's a really important point. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, do you think that's a good thing that the new variants dominate a lot of the reports uh, when, again, the lay person may not fully understand the severity or what is a variant? I don't know. Um, I guess there's a threshold you reach when you want to be talking about these things. Let's start with that, you know? Mm. And it was quite clear those the three variants cropped up and were becoming dominant in the population. Yeah. So we know the B117 now is the dominant one in Europe and Ireland, for instance. So it makes sense to tell people about that. Mm. It can have a positive effect because it will say, look, this is more transmissible. Double down on all the measures, you know, make sure you mm. keep doing it because there's a new virus around and it might motivate people. But then you're kind of trying to counterbalance that with the risk of pandemic fatigue. In other words, it's out of control. There's no point. Yeah. It's a difficult one, you know. Uh, I do think with the vaccine one, that's a concern because we still don't know whether the vaccines will protect against the variants. We know that the, the, the current vaccines will protect against the B117. They're less efficacious against the other ones, maybe. But that's the antibody response. We still don't know whether the T cell response has been preserved and maybe the vaccines will work against these variants, you know. Now, what do you do in that situation? Do you, do you tell people we don't know? Probably that's the best thing. Look, don't worry. It's a work in progress. The science will try and find this out. I normally talk about the variants by saying, look, there's a risk the vaccines will show less efficacy. But I'm confident there'll be some protection against severe disease. That's a reasonable thing to conclude. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we're going to make vaccines for the new variants anyway. So it's not to worry people, you know. So when you turn to a lay audience, I think that's the best approach to that. I, I wouldn't necessarily suppress it. You don't, you don't want to talk about the 10 other variants that are out there because we said I'm not about them. You know? yeah. so the threshold yeah. is to do with how much knowledge we have about them and then when to re reveal them, you know, mm. in a way that you won't worry people, but in a way that is allowing for transparency about these variants. Yeah, no, that, like it's true because uh, a lot of people, I think when they report these variants, they just they don't understand and I, I think it is something yeah. that is definitely not lo lost um, when it's trying to be explained so it is a, it's a good question to ask the guys it's a difficult one isn't it yeah you don't want to be hiding things either you know the, the worst I think the, the best thing to do is to treat people like adults right and say look it isn't all fantastic there are issues there are things we don't know we may have a way out of it we may have a plan to deal with this uncertainty that's a very important thing to follow up on you know and I, I'm a big fan of doing it that way. I mean, if, if, if you if you listen to the press conferences every night, you, you, you'd be at the end of your tether, you know. <laughs> um, but but that's a better way to do it because science is supposed to be about uh, you know coming up with ideas and hypotheses and ways to 
come up with solutions. As you guys well know in your own projects, things don't work, but you can you, you try to configure a solution around. Them. Yeah, Jesus, tell me about it. Look, but, but exactly though, yeah, you're, you're, <laughs> anybody as you know yourself, it's not easy. But uh, but you're much better off saying, look, this is an unknown. We don't want this, by the way. It's fair to say, look, this this is the last thing we need in a new variant. Mm, you know, yeah, yeah, there it is it's in front of us, and now we got to deal with. It. And this is the best way to deal with that. Yeah. yeah, you do a great job of keeping us all hopeful and optimistic. So thanks for that. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm, tempted, Evan, I'm tempted just for a laugh to go on, and, <laughs> go on the sick one and go, we're all doomed. <laughs> <laughs> the end of the prime time year when you played the Beatles out and you're like things can't get any worse and I think that's a can't good way to look. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I picked that song on purpose. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and on this podcast as well, like in the name, we try to be skeptical, but you are, we are yeah. aware that something we can say could be used in the spread of misinformation. Like for someone like you with such a huge, larger audience, is it possible to be skeptical, or is that like a constant worry that? something you will be say will be used in the anti-science community um yeah no you can be productively skeptical as you know and, and the essence of to be to be a scientist is to be skeptical that that's part of our whole modus operandi and remember the famous robert boyle book the skeptical chemist <laughs> robert boyle the famous irish chemist his book was called the skeptical chemist. Oh, <laughs> i didn't know that <laughs> For me that that captures the essence of it. and remember the other thing i always say i mean the, the motto of the royal society the world's oldest scientific society, of which I happen to be a fellow, by the way, as you may or may not know, which is pretty rarefied. The motto is take nobody's word. And that, that was in 1660 when they got that. It was nullius in Berber was the Latin, you know. So that's great. Now, the trouble is the general public is the next question, because if we're all skeptical all the time, in other words, if you pull back the curtain and it's the Wizard of Oz standing there, we don't want too much of that either. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, if I go to a scientific conference and it's just experts, that's a great environment to be skeptical in because skepticism mm. is about getting to the truth. So that's the mission of the skeptic is to get to the truth. You've got to be careful with the general public because they don't know all the details. And they might hear an argument between two sides. Oh, that, that's an argument that they're disagreeing with. In science, we love disagreements. <laughs> so so it's, a, it's, it's, it's a hard one to get right because the, the public will often latch onto that then and, and go down the wrong road, you know? And of course, you're dead right. The conspiracy theorists will, will play on that. And we'll go, those guys don't know what they're talking about. I told you those experts were wrong, you know. So so it's a tricky battle. Again, it's another Yeah, it's this context there. really matters a huge amount. Context is everything, absolutely. And expertise, sadly, is everything. Because you've got to have a certain level of knowledge to it to, to embrace skepticism and not let it feed into a conspiracy or into, into kind of a negative thing that, yeah. that won't help anybody. You know? Yeah, yeah, because um, we, we talked about... Uh, like anti these mass studies that kind of didn't show that masks were effective or I looked at this Pfizer study that when they released the vaccine results there were some of the yeah. things that were just a little bit odd and I, I it's weird that I always have to feel say like oh but I'm, I'm not anti-mask or I'm like I'm not yeah. uh anti-vaccine it's just like I want to I want to let people know but then that's yeah, yeah that's always the worry because another good thing Evan is this which I say to people if this, if something's very complicated in science really come this COVID thing is actually very very complicated so is climate change they're, they're two of the most complicated things we can confront as a as a as a bunch of scientists what do you do because you will find evidence in favor of a different viewpoint okay or, or, a, or a different uh, sort of conclusion you go for the consensus then that's what's important what's the consensus scientific view and with climate change i think it's 98 percent now of climatologists say it's humans that are causing it 
There's still 2% who say they disagree with that. And they might produce a piece of evidence that says that, you know. And the mask is a great one. There was a Danish paper on mask not working. That, that was the one I was talking about, yeah. Yeah, now, now that was there. They, they saw those things. They, they were criticized for lack of controls and various things, you know. And, and then, but the data is there, but the vast consensus of the science was to wear a mask, you know. And that, that's the only way you can do it, really, is to talk about a consensus. Mm, yeah, true. You see? Uh, so uh, this is, I was really passionate about this one, so I'm happy we get a chance to ask you. From the very beginning, you surrounded yourself with excellent scientists like John Vane on the, uh, during your uh, PhD. And I wonder what advice can you give to young researchers who are just starting? Uh, how should they learn from their mentors in the most efficient way? Yeah, well, for me, I'm glad you did your homework there, Tom. That's very impressive. <laughs> for me, I, I was drawn to certain mentors myself, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I realized, oh, that guy's good, or that woman is great, or whatever it is, you know, and I'd list five or six people over my career who I, I knew to spend time with, let's put it that yeah, way. Yeah, of course. I don't mean you talk to them, you meet them at conferences, you, mm -hmm. you get to know them, they inspire you, you know, so I think, I think the, the key piece of advice is choose your mentor very carefully. <laughs> now, what do you base it on? You base it on their, for me personally, with their excellence as a scientist. I knew I'd read their papers, you know, and yeah. they really impressed me scientifically. It should only be science, of course, ultimately, that their science should inspire you, you know. And then when I went to do my postdoc in Cambridge, um, my, the guy who became my boss, he, 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 he did a fantastic nature paper, mm. which I read. And, oh, well, that's good. It's in nature. You know, that's quite good. <laughs> and now I, I read the paper closely. Oh, that impressed me his approach that kind of thing you know mm. so, so the, first, the, the, the key thing is to choose your mentor very carefully um, and the most important thing is we need them your young scientists it's extremely important of mentors because it is the master apprentice thing partly but it's also to just give a bit of inspiration because you, there's many reasons to quit this business yeah <laughs> believe me yes <laughs> so 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 the, the mentor and then and then i was lucky to have three or four really important men. another one i'd mention is a guy called charles dinarillo now he was a very famous cytokine biologist. He, he discovered mm -hmm. IL-1, my favorite cytokine. I met him when I was a PhD student in London, and he immediately, he was supportive of me. That he, he, like, I remember I gave a talk at a conference when I was quite young, mm -hmm. maybe in the third year of my PhD, and after I said that was a very good topic, that gave me such encouragement. Oh, Jesus, yes. If you're a hero, he said you're doing a good job. You know? <laughs> and, and, I knew he, and I knew he wouldn't say that just for the sake of it. He was a rigorous mm -hmm. scientist, you know, so. But the mentoring thing is extremely important to, to have in, in our lives. That's what Yes, yes. I'll give you the last question. Um, so in times of crisis, we've seen major advancements in technology, um, like during World War II and during the space race along with the Cold War. Um, do you see something similar happening post-pandemic? And more generally, what are you most excited by? I do, John. I remember the phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. Let's start with that, you know? And that, that's what this is, really. There's a huge need, you know? And then for some reason, we all got galvanized, don't we? You know, we all got to go behind. Maybe, maybe people are working 24-7 then, you know, whatever it is, are looking for solutions, you know, and that's exactly right. I mean, the Second World War, you know, it's a good one, radar or whatever, you know. Um, with this, there's no doubt the big advance of the vaccines is obvious in a way, you know. I mean, talk about a fantastic uh, outcome so far that we went from no vaccines at all, remember, because it was a brand yeah. new virus. Yeah. We've 11 now actually, that are highly efficacious and very safe, you know. And then remember, John, that they had to invent new technology. And they realized if you go back 12 months from now, say March or February, probably this time last year, the vaccine people who we knew, the Oxford guys who I know very well, 
the Pfizer, BioNTech people, they knew to try something new, you know, because the old fashioned techniques hadn't delivered a vaccine quickly enough. Like they almost got a vaccine for SARS, but not quite, you know, but they knew let's try this newer technology now. And then it worked. The RNA technology really worked. With AstraZeneca, it was oh, the Oxford guys. It was this, this chimpanzee virus was used yeah. as a delivery yeah. mechanism. Never approved for a vaccine before. So, and that, that meant taking a punt, you know, because that might not work. Now, now the other ones, like, um, uh, for example, Novavax, they were using a technology used for Ebola. So that, that was a new technology-ish, you know, but, but it hadn't been used for bigger diseases. So, so I, th I think that the biggest thing we're going to get out of this is vaccination. Uh, and, then we're, and then we're not talking about COVID. COVID will go. Never forget that. It'll go endemic. We're out of it. Yeah. We're looking at cancer, for instance. There's a real prospect now of vaccines for cancer. They were there already, but this is this is supercharged that. And then malaria, TB, you know, all the diseases we still need vaccines for. Watch, they'll be next to fall over. We hope, you know, from, from this big advance that's come coming back because of COVID. Yeah, I, not not long ago, I saw a Pfizer released a paper in Science. Uh, I think it was an RNA-based technology for MS. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Now, that, that, that was about, about a month ago, precisely. Yeah. And again, you can see now how, how that, that's all about tolerance in the immune system and trying to tolerate against autoantigens, you know? So yeah. that's right. Exactly. You're going to see the, the, these approaches that have come out of COVID could be used for autoimmune disease, for cancer, and for other infectious diseases. So that, that's a big hope. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a great note of optimism to end on. I think that we could actually have a vaccine for cancer, maybe because of all this. Well, we um, already have COVID. one. Well, there is HPV. Oh, the HPV, true. yeah, but that's an infectious driven cancer. <laughs> well, the, the whole the, the dream there, Evan, was to get a vaccine. Tumors have antigens, remember, just like anything else. Mm. So, can you develop a vaccine to the antigens in tumors, and that, and that may come about? Yeah, that's cool. Um, okay, I think that was that was everything. Um, thanks again for uh, joining us. That was really insightful. Really enjoyed the conversation we had. Um, do you have anything else to add, Tom? Uh, no, look, like. Thank you so much for doing this for us. And um, hopefully when the COVID time is a little more quiet and you have more time, maybe you could come back again. We can talk about your immunology work because it's uh, I'm still I, I'd love I'd love the review you wrote about the Krebs cycle and macrophages. Oh, very good. So, yeah. uh, it was a little bit hard to understand at some points because I'm not immunologist, but uh, it was really good. <laughs> Well, I'm very glad. God, we've spanned everything, so haven't we? we? I'm very, very impressed by your, 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 your background reading was really impressive as well. I mean, I'm a scientist at the end exactly. of the day. <laughs> yes. yeah. oh, I don't mind. We should do another one then, guys. Just, just, just on immunology, maybe. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, yeah. thank you, thank you so much. Very happy to help. Great stuff, guys. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Instagram at skeptically inclined and on Twitter at skeptically i. Or alternatively, you can email us your questions, comments, or maybe to suggest a topic for discussion at skepticallyinclined at gmail.com. And remember, that's skeptically with a C, not a K. Thanks again to Luke O'Neill for joining us on this episode. Uh, we're thankful and very grateful for him being on. Um, what did you think, Tom, of the interview? Yeah, Jesus, uh, he's the same person uh, when you hear him on the radio or something, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly um, the same person. Mm. Very friendly, um, very personal, and just a really good guest to have on. Um, and yeah, I really got insights into some of the questions I always was wondering and how we came across, especially with the being skeptical in general, because I always feel like I have to leave a disclaimer whenever I talk about 
anything controversial or yeah slash somewhat conspiratorial i thought was really interesting how he said context does matter and you need to know your audience to mention this up because you can't just assume that the average person knows what you're talking about you have to just assume that they don't know and if if you say take it if they take it up wrong then it can have dangerous side consequences so thought that was really interesting yeah and uh, there, there is a difference right when you when you're trying to communicate like a public health health message to when you're talking to a colleague on the conference just like Luke pointed out you're gonna have a it's a completely different form of a conversation when you like discussing a very specific data set or very specific results on a given presentation versus when you're trying to give a public a, a kind of an overview of what's going on and how one should behave you know that's a that's a completely different uh, conversation. Yeah. And it was interesting how he completely disagreed with what the suspension of the AstraZeneca mm. Oxford vaccine in the other countries and he considered it not, uh, it shouldn't have been done. And uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, interesting that he's still very adamant that it should never have been suspended. And I think he is true and correct especially with this new paper that's been published so um it's good to see it's good to hear that he he has yeah that he's yeah but there's a like the the science knows um that that the the risk linked with the clotting and astrazeneca vaccine it's uh it's very small extra small but then these countries were making decision based on their uh a political agenda i think rather than on science you think it was politically i think motivated. it was poli- i think it was because uh because it was a in my opinion it was a political move because they didn't want to trust science because what if because if that would be the party that greenlighted the astrazeneca in the midst of this clot controversy and in their head they could be thinking like if something goes wrong we it's gonna be on us it's gonna be our it's it's gonna be our politicians that are gonna pay for it so i think they just wanted to play the long game call it say that it could be dangerous or not safe and just just waited it waited it out until they may be like 100 percent sure john i think they were yeah being really risk averse as well and nobody really wanted to lead and take the fall and say no you know what we're gonna we're going to stick to the what the EMA, the WHO was saying and continue with the vaccine. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't want to be conspiracy theories, anything, but like I, I, right, right now there were, there have been like uh, elections in the Netherlands and it kind of overlap with the withdrawal of the vaccination. So that's how I drew that link that maybe, you know, they just want to be extra careful because if something would happen, that would affect the results of the election for the party you know that but like this is me speculating yeah we didn't get we didn't get a chance to talk much about the book lads what do you think evan yeah it's a really good book um as a as a science person it can be quite broad but i think think for the general public it is a really interesting book and really good useful information um and it was really interesting i he mentioned about the misinformation with vaccines and stuff and in his book he mentions that uh vaccine consp- uh vaccine skepticism has always been a part of history which mm. i didn't know that even back in the early 1900s or late 1800s that they would say oh if you got a vaccine against uh i don't know what they were vaccinating about inspector well, smallpox right yeah that 
that you would be turned into an animal or something like that. So it's always existed. It's not really a new phenomenon. I suppose the the paradox is that you have more information now than you they did ever back then. So you would think when you have all the information, you would it would be able to know that vaccines are safe. But it's just now people are able to find misinformation online and it access to, it readily access to information doesn't necessarily translate uh or uh the right information getting out there so yeah it's just um it, it was an interesting interesting discussion in his book and the other one i read recent the other chapter i just finished was the climate change and mm-hmm. uh when he talked about the climate change and the battle we're facing it's uh it's so weird it's i can see so many parallels with it and covid the covid pandemic in that uh there's still so much to be done and we need there's a lot to be done and people need to take it serious and uh and i kind of see it in a way that people with the pandemic certain individuals don't really care and they're like i don't care i'm going to look after I, I i have a freedom of my rights to do whatever i want to do and i can see that with other countries and that they were like i don't want to we we, we want to make money i don't want to have to sacrifice making money to benefit the global cause of global warming fight against the global fight against global warming so it was interesting i kind of found there was parallels there mm. um what did you think no i agree with you um just trying was to there think. any was there any particular cha- chapter you enjoyed yes well i uh i think and enjoy it's a weird word but i really um i was really invested in the chapter when when where luke talked about uh, euthanasia yeah. um i thought it was very personal um I, without necessarily spoiling the book to anyone, I thought that particular chapter was very uh, personal, and it was. I think it was a mix of the science together with kind of uh, philosophical questions of ethics, which is something that I'm into <laughs> recently. So uh, that's why I really enjoyed that chapter. Um, yeah, I think that one has the the biggest impression on me. Of course, the vaccine chapter was. Uh, uh, just so relevant that it was unavoidable to 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 make it interesting um and uh, of the one about the jail as well uh really 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 yeah the book is r- really good so uh one of the interesting thing was about the j- crime and are you predisposed to crime like nature versus nurture and they said that there is a link between a certain genetic mutation and susceptibility to a cop to cause crime or to be involved in crime and that they've actually used this gene what's it called again maoa yeah and they've used it in trials to actually help get more lenient sentences for individuals and john what you uh, what you think overall as a look as a scientist a science communicator and a book author yeah all of the above i really admire i think I think he's a great communicator and he's so positive. It's it's great to see someone who actually knows things and be positive at the same time. Mm. And people really like to listen to people who kind of speak with that tone because they're not just waffling, they're not just giving um, information that they don't know to be true. Um, that's really refreshing. Also, not afraid to say, I don't know if he if he doesn't know a thing. Yeah, and I think that, that should be standard as a, for every scientist, but you don't get that from every scientist. Yeah. Yeah, it just it really like it humbles you, you know, uh, if you can say that I don't know. 
and I think that makes you think a little bit more, little bit more sober about science in general. If you know, if you know your limitations, and um, yeah, because sometimes you know there are people that have such a huge egos that they would just keep rumbling on until they 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 try to make the answer work for them, like you know. And on that note, we'll end uh, this very special episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We re- certainly did. And thanks again to Luke O'Neill for joining us. Next time, we'll have a regular sp- episode where we'll talk about more science. Yeah, Jesus. Well, you for a normal episode. Thanks again for listening. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Bye.